place it comfortably. Isn't the rain wonderful? I have an enduring memory from years and years ago where I drove out into the country once into some farmland and I stopped by the side of the road and I saw this um, farmer in his paddocks and, and it was raining quite heavily, much more heavy than here. It's a very heavy drizzle and um, this farmer was out on his horse with his driver bone, drives as a bone, you know, a raincoat on and so on, but his head uncovered and the horse and um, and what I was struck by is that there was no rush or anything in the way the horse or the, or the man walked along through the paddocks. Uh, so they were, they were quite at home in, in the rain. There was no sense of, oh, it's raining, we've got to get out of here fast or whatever. <laughs> is that the horse was just quite peaceful, walking along step by step slowly, and the man was just sort of, you know, moving along in the saddle, no rush. Um, lovely, lovely, beautiful, just acceptance of what is, you know, without having any kind of sense of aversion to it or whatever. We can enjoy the rain, both inside and outside. Now this is the um, uh, last full day of session and it's the last talk that I give. And I've noticed as a pattern um, in my talks on the last day of session that I, I, the question I'm asking myself all the time on the last day of session is how can we bring this um, insight and peace and equanimity that we've cultivated here for a week, how, how do we bring that into our everyday lives and, um, and keep it going in some way? Um, so the work, is, the work is dynamic in some way. That's the, the most important question on my mind. And the theme that I come back to, I find over and over again, is re-looking and reminding <coughs> all of us, including me, of the, um, the aspect of the practice which we call the precepts or the practice of the precepts, um, Zen ethics, and how we apply that with our meditation and our insight um, into the way that we, we live our lives in a, in a world which is sometimes harmonious and friendly and fine and, and sometimes uh, where we're confronted with um, greed, hatred and ignorance. How do, we, how do we deal with that? How do we bring our practice to that? And I'll begin by quoting the words of... Um, Robert Aitken, uh, one of my old teachers, who wrote extensively about Zen ethics. Without the precepts as guidelines, Zen Buddhism tends to become a hobby made to fit the needs of the ego. And he goes on to say, in my view, the true Zen center is not a mere sanctuary to escape from the world but a source from which ethically motivated people move outward to engage in the larger community. <clears throat> now let me go through again, um, remind all of us um, what the, the ten Zen precepts are. And while um, I've, I've uh, uh, 
used Diane Rosetto's book um, extensively as a way of teaching the precepts. Um, for this occasion, I've, I'm using the precepts of the um, Zen Centre of San Francisco because I like it when they're worded in the negative as well as the positive. We get, we get the negative version of it, but we, we look at what we can aspire to as well. And when we put to two, the two together, I think we get a clearer understanding of what our path is when we practice the precepts. So the first one is not killing, but rather cultivating and encouraging life. Notice the words cultivating and encouraging. Cultivating means maybe to um, cultivate it in ourselves, but encouraging means um, to skillfully help others, you know, to, to live their life in a non-harming kind of way without being self-righteous. Number two, not taking what is not given, but cultivating and encouraging generosity. Number three, not misusing sexuality, but rather cultivating and encouraging honesty and caring relationships. Number four, not lying, but cultivating and encouraging truthful communication. Number five, not intoxicating self or others, but cultivating and encouraging clarity. Number six, not slandering others, but cultivating respectful speech. Number seven, not praising self at the expense of others, but rather cultivating self and other to abide in their own awakened nature. Number eight, not possessing or being possessive, but cultivating and encouraging mutual support. Nine, not harbouring ill will, but rather cultivating and encouraging kindness and understanding. And the tenth one, um, not abusing the three treasures. The three treasures in Buddhism are Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. Not abusing the three treasures, but encouraging awakening, encouraging the path and the teaching of awakening, and the community that supports awakening. They're the ten precepts. And um, really what they're encouraging us to do, along with the practice of meditation, is in simple terms to live a life of integrity. Now a life of integrity implies something of constancy. We're not, we're not just fickle this moment and fickle that next, but there's some kind of inner compass, some kind of inner guide that that moves us in a, a sense of constancy in, in, in how we actually live our life and respond to the circumstances around us. And as much as possible, it, 
it, its integrity is also about how we are in public as we are in private. Mm -hmm. And it also, one of, the, one of the greatest challenges of living a life of integrity um, is, is being, in a sense, being an individual. You know, in the sense of not being caught up in group speech, you know, not being not being caught up in a herd instinct, you know, everyone else is doing it, so it's okay. Mm -hmm. So there's a sense of, of healthy individualism in the way that we um, practice in integrity. You know, is that we above all things, to thine own self be true, um, is a is a a saying from the past that comes to mind around this. And that can take great courage at times. Do you know, not, not just in public life, but also in personal life too, in family life, group life, in work life. Do you know, other people are gossiping, you know, and you, and you don't get caught up in the gossip. Mm -hmm. When it would be just so easy to fall in with it, you know, and laugh at someone or mock someone or be superior to someone. It's just not, not getting involved in that. And people look at you, what, well, what's wrong with you? you know, it's like, well, too bad. Getting caught up in it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and if, we, if we take it even further, um, not only is it a, a kind of standard or, or a guideline that we have for ourselves, and this is where um, we would need to be very skillful in the way that we do this. But when it says cultivate and encouraging, there may be other ways that we encourage others not to gossip either in the workplace or in the family. And maybe it's just by being a role model. Maybe that's, that's the best you can do. Um, I, would, I would hate myself or, other, or, or encourage people to, to take self-righteous positions, you know, be preaching. You know, that's, that's not very skillful. But maybe sometimes the best role model is not to be part of the gossip, you know. And, uh, but sometimes it may be useful to point out to other people that they're gossiping. I'll leave it up to you. Mm -hmm. Now, um, in Zen Buddhism, um, like a, a monk or a lay person in Japan would be aware of the precepts and they're there in the background but they're not in the foreground often. And in traditional Zen training, the precepts um, are looked at much more intensely at the end of training rather than the beginning of training. And, um, and Joko, my teacher, for reasons of her own, not, not following a Japanese tradition, but for reasons of her own, um, she lived a, a, very, a life of very, very strong integrity, but she had a view that if you teach precepts to people in the beginning of practice, um, that they can too easily get caught up in idealism, you know, and trying to live up to an ideal self and, and just see the precepts as a bunch of thou shalt nots. And she thought that it was something that once you grounded in the practice more, um, that, that was introduced. Now, um, I, disrespect, I, I respectfully disagree um, with my teacher's view on that. 
and um, I'm more closely aligned to my first teacher, Robert Aiken, in terms of that, that perspective. And I see no reason why um, the precepts can't be taught, you know, looked at quite thoroughly, along with meditation right from the very beginning, um, and that we integrate the two. And if there is a, a danger of falling into idealism, or even self-righteousness, well then we, we deal with that along the way. Um, but I think, as Robert Aitken said in the beginning, you know, if we don't integrate the precepts into our practice along with meditation, he said, well, it becomes kind of like a hobby. You know? My way of saying it is that I just don't think that we um, give ourselves the best chance to awaken fully if we don't engage with the precepts right from the very beginning. But we need to in, in, engage with them somewhere along the line. Now, the way that the precepts are traditionally taught in Zen Buddhism, and if you, if you formally take up the precepts and you go through a, a ceremony in front of the Sangha where you take them up, you, you look at them in three different ways, the three different levels at which you examine the precepts. And one is from um, what would be referred to as a literal point of view, like don't slander, don't steal, don't harm. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's another level, which one might say is a deeper level, and that is um, the level of compassion and kindness. It, it, we, is that we don't do it just because it's wrong, is that we don't want to do those things because out of kindness we just don't want to harm other people, out of compassion, out of fellow feeling. Um, that would be our motivation not to actually steal or to do harm. Mm -hmm. And then the third level, which is the one which causes a lot of difficulty for people and can be misunderstood, is um, the level of emptiness, which life, in other words, life is just as it is. There's just suchness there. And within that suchness, um, harm comes to people and other beings. It just happens. An ant gets squashed. You squat a mosquito and you kill it. Mm -hmm. um, a person is mindless while they're driving a car and runs over a child and kills that child. At one level, it just happened. It just happened. Um, it's the suchness of things. Um, and that is also another way of understanding what actually happens in life. Um, as Robert Aiken quite rightly pointed out, is that some um, samurai Zen teachers in Japan just looked at that empty perspective without looking at the other two, and then it justified killing people. Mm -hmm. It's just that sword stroke, just that dying person, you know, so that made it okay. Um, but these, what's important is to recognise is that there's a synergy between all these different levels. 
one sense, literally, it's, it's just wrong. Mm -hmm. At another level, out of compassion, we simply would not want to do that. At another level, it's just life as it is. But they all need to be integrated with one another, otherwise we go off on tangents. If we only look at the precepts literally, like it's wrong, um, we don't get the more subtle understandings of it. Now, what I want to say about it is to, as well, and this is a little bit of a, a work in progress for me, but um, I want to integrate those three levels of understanding precepts um, with my um, uh, understanding of emotions as a psychologist and try and integrate the two. Now, when, when you read about the um, contemporary psychology about um, moral, moral behaviour in human beings, is that psychologists who study this, are, and particularly evolutionary psychologists, are of the view that there are emotions that underpin our sense of morality in the world, you know, and guide us in terms of um, what we think are right or wrong behaviours. And one of those emotions is disgust. Now, disgust is a very primitive emotion that all animals have, like dogs and cats and horses have it. They sniff the food before they eat it, you know, because if it's you know, um, off, they could, they could kill them, it could be poisonous. So at a very primitive level, it's a survival instinct. And then what happens with human beings is that with that sort of biological um, sort of base, as sophisticated human beings, we've where um, develop those feelings of disgust into um, looking at other aspects of our life. So, um, and, and it's opposite, like in an aesthetic sense, could be good taste. You know, we think that that, that art is in good taste, but that's disgusting. You know, or that fashion's in good taste and that, that fashion's disgusting. We use those words. But we also have that same reaction when we come across um, um, unethical behaviour, uh, which seems like it's really extreme and disgraceful. Like when we hear about, about sexual abuse of children, you know, we can have a sense of disgust about it occurring. Mm -hmm. So it's one of the emotions that underpins our, our moral sense in the world. And there was an interesting um, paper which was written on it years ago and, and the title of it says it all, from oral to moral. Mm -hmm. From oral to moral. Oral is the, that basic disgust, smell, taste kind of experience. And then oral to moral, how we, that emotion underpins um, what we think is healthy or wholesome or unwholesome in, in our ethical life, in our life as human beings. Another emotion that underpins our sense of morality is shame. And shame is a very misunderstood emotion. And currently, um, I believe that um, people have become so shame-sensitive um, that we can only see shame in a negative light, that it's just a, a, a terrible emotion which damages people. But when you look more closely into it and you read the literature, 
is that many people see shame as an antidote to grandiosity. And, and we fail, I think, often to see that um, remorse is, is the experience of shame. And remorse is, a, is a, an antidote to grandiosity and to egotism. And you could describe remorse as healthy shame. Do you know that? And, and I've mentioned it before. Um, in, in traditional Buddhism, I forget the word for it, but there was a word which translates as shame, and it was considered to be a very good characteristic of a monk to, to have that sensitivity. What they're referring to is not toxic shame that we often talk about in psychotherapy where we've seen children abused and so on and they feel ashamed about themselves. What that Buddhist term is referring to is, is the healthy side of it, of remorse. That we, do, we make a mistake, you know, we, we either intentionally or unintentionally harm someone or something, and that, that sense of remorse kicks in. Without that, there would be no break on our behaviour. Mm -hmm. um, there would be no, no consequence. Um, that's, what, that's the way psychopaths live their life. They, 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 the, the sense of remorse is missing from their emotional repertoire. So they haven't got a break on what they do. Mm -hmm. And if we look at current things, you know, in our, in our public life, like with a, um, the Royal Commission into Banking, you know, and the man Kenneth, I forget his last name, who's the judge presiding over it, says that his his assessment of it is, is that the banking culture was driven not just by a few bad apples, but by a culture of greed. You know, and that greed um, was self-serving and harmed so many people, continues to harm so many people. And as those people who are the heads of banks go into the witness box and they're questioned and challenged, you know, need to, you know, they, they. Uh, a challenge to acknowledge what they did wrong. Um, and in a sense, it's a public shaming. Mm -hmm. And it's there for a reason, you know, to, to challenge those people and all of us. That, that, that we need to be held to be account. We all need to be, you know, when, when we've done something that's very harmful of that degree. And, and it's a cleansing kind of process. And what I'm aware of in my, my reading this year is that um, um, after the Second World War and after the horrors of the Holocaust became public, in Germany there was roughly around 80,000 people who were publicly brought to account, who had to show their face in public and in public be, you know, to, to, be, to, to take um, account of the fact that they were involved in the murdering of six million Jews, that they, they, they were complicit with it. You know, they enabled it in some way. 80,000 people had to come into public and acknowledge that. And as a result of that public cleansing, um, it, was a kind of a, it was a kind of public purging of a disgrace that actually happened. And Germany has a different culture from what I understand it now from those times. Other countries that have been responsible for um, atrocities you know, to other groups of people 
um, who haven't gone through that public shaming process, they continue to do it over and over again. Because no one in the culture, no one's really been held accountable. It's just kept secret and out of the, out of the way. And um, so, disgust, remorse and so on, are the emotions, I think, that are very much involved in that, that more literal um, understanding of morality. You know, don't do this, don't do that, right? And the kind of negative emotions that, that drive our behaviour or shape our behaviour. But move up into compassion and the motivation for not doing harm is not so much driven by the fear of shame or disgust. It's driven by what you might refer to as a higher emotion of the emotion of empathy. You know, we don't want to harm because we actually have a, an empathic connection with others. And that empathic connection with others, as I was saying about the other day, gets larger and larger because through meditation and practice, we're not just an observer of life, we become immersed in life. If we become immersed in the sense of interbeing and, and fellow being with all different species and cultures and so on, is that through that very deep identification, we have, a, we have an empathic connection. We resonate when harmful things happen to others. Mm-hmm. because they're like us. Mm-hmm. And that, that sort of higher motivation, you know, of empathy um, becomes a driving force behind our ethical behaviour. Then, <clears throat> to come to the third one, and as I said um, yesterday, do you know, empathy can also be uh, the motivation behind identifying with a racial group, which, which then doesn't include another racial group and becomes the basis of racism. So empathy is a kind of... Racism is a very, very limited empathy with these people but not those. And as we, as we practice and we, we sense our... We get insight into the interconnectedness of everything, do you know, that, that empathy pervades... Well, I can, I can hear Robert Aitken's words echoing in my head. He would have said that empathy pervades the whole universe. Nothing's, nothing's left out because nothing can be left out. Then when we come to looking at that, the empty view of the precepts, that there is no stealing and there is no killing, you know, there's just moments happening like that. The ant gets trodden on just like that, it dies. The mosquito gets swatted, it dies just like that. A man or a woman gets killed just like that in a road accident through mindless driving. Mm -hmm. Christ gets crucified on a cross. He's just hanging there. That's the momentary experience, it's just hanging there and hanging there in agony. But that, that's the momentary experience of it. Now, 
what on earth can that bring us? What emotion is behind that? It seems rather callous. But if we have a way of looking at the world through those eyes as well, through the world, through the eyes of emptiness, where there is no right and wrong, and no good or bad, when those concepts aren't projected onto it, then I believe it also brings a sense of equanimity. That this is just the way life is. You know, these things happen, it's just the way it is. It doesn't mean it's, we condone it. But if our, if our sense of um, morality is only driven by disgust and anger too, and shame, then, then there's no balance of equanimity in that. We just run off like a pork chop, you know, in self-righteous, crazy, emotive kind of ways. And we're not channeling um, those emotions into in constructive behaviours. So we need a sense of equanimity that stuff just happens in the world, which is unpleasant and painful. But if, we, if there's a synergy of that with compassion and there's also a synergy with these other emotions of disgust, remorse, anger and so on, if somehow they can all coexist, if they can all interbe, then we have a way of, of moving forward in life. If we only have one of them or two of them, something's missing. We need, it's like we need all three levels. That's why I think in their wisdom, you know, the teachers of the past have taught the precepts at these, these three levels. 